Yes. That is the United Federation of Planets. Today we honor Ensign Sylvia Tilly, accepted into Starfleet Command Training Program. Yes. That is Starfleet. Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets, Medical Officer Hugh Culver. Yes, that is who we are. Commander Saru, first Kelpian to receive the Medal of Honor. And who we will always be. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, going where yeah, maybe a few other people have gone before. <laughs> and I have a question for you, Tyler. What is Starfleet? I don't even think the creators of the show know at this point, Cam. I think it has just this disparate organization that has many functions, which we will be diving into this episode. But it varies from episode to episode throughout the franchise, as well as from movies. And it depends on, I think, the story that they want to tell, also the creators behind it. But I think we want to have kind of a deep dive into what... Starfleet's meant to be because it could be anything from I know a diplomatic corps to facilitating trade, uh, bringing cargo along. Let's do scientific expeditions. Oh, you know what? It's time for war. Let's have a military sort of action going on with Starfleets. Um, Kim, I, I I don't know. Like from your perspective, you know, when you're first starting to get into Star Trek. Did you see it as like an analog for like, I don't know, uh, navies, you know, of the world that we have on planet Earth or, you know, for space agencies, you know, whether it's NASA, the Soviet space program, what have you? What's your general interpretation? I would have to think because I'm going back to my real introduction, which would have been the movies, the TOS movies. And I think there was a sense of being someone who came off of the Star Wars world. That was my big passion when I was young that, yeah, it would have been more of a Navy kind of show because the uniforms had a military look. And I'm talking about myself when I'm like 11, 12, that sort of thing. So you're not really looking at it in a hugely um, complex way, but it's like the visuals of the uniforms and everything had a Navy vibe. There was a strong sense of Navy strategy going on in the battles in space. And so I think I just had a somewhat simplistic vibe of sort of this military approach to a um, sci-fi property that was more grounded in a real-world kind of um, approach to these sorts of um, tactics and world-building than, say, what Star Wars was doing. And it wasn't really until I think I started watching TNG and then ultimately TOS was the one I really dove into where I began to then see the differences in the depictions and just how how like disparate the approaches to starfleet were yeah it, it's just weird because I, I think it's really more my understanding of how uh militaries or space agencies operate now that made me realize like how weird 
Starfleet is. Yeah. You know, and how uh, maybe there is no perfect analog because I think it has so many different functions across the universe. And so why don't we kind of dive into it? Like uh, maybe I, I can kind of provide like um, like a, a rundown of the various functions. I, I kind of alluded to it before, but look, um, I don't know. I've always liked thinking about it as kind of like space explorers, you know, and we think of like our explorers here on Earth, you know, Columbus or Magellan, you know, kind of those expeditions were more about colonization or, you know, facilitating trade routes. Um, but there was a kind of militaristic bent to it, you know, um, you know, you'd have like cannons and, and uh, people with, with weapons uh, colonizing, which I, I'm not going to you know pat them on the back for that. But Starfleet was, you know, in addition to the exploratory nature of it it was facilitating scientific studies uh moving forward with diplomatic engagements uh, as well as trade so many visits to mining colonies cam just so many visits you know <laughs> but look if a war was going to break out starfleet would be the one you know um providing military protection for the federation and it was often dispatched on military engagements as well which is why it doesn't quite match up with any sort of analog that we have here on earth but are, are there any functions any obvious functions that i'm missing no i think that pretty much covers it i yeah just to me it was always when i got into watching some tng episodes and then tos it was my main focus became more on like the peacekeeping and exploratory avenues but i always thought it was just really interesting for myself watching the original movies first and then imagining people in my shoes, people who only watched the films, you would have a very different approach to what Starfleet is versus what ultimately the majority of Trek is when you watch, you know, the many, many, many hundreds of hours of actual TV. Well, you know, let's get into that because I think that w when you bring up the, the films, I, I think Nicholas Meyer had a huge influence on how it's perceived within pop culture. He was very interested in portraying it as more of a, a militaristic or paramilitaristic sort of organization. And it's interesting because you even have like David, you know, Kirk's son, remarking on how he kind of thought these guys were bozos. You know, like it, it seemed as if Meyer's own interpretation was more about doing patrols around outer space rather than scientific engagements and exploration that was mostly left to the civilian scientists you know the, the folks that would have been pursuing kind of the genesis project and we, we really did see that um in full force uh, we talked about it just very recently with uh, the undiscovered country but that was very much focused on like how starfleet as a military industrial complex has to have its own kind of grappling with its identity if you don't have kind of the klingons to contend with as they kind of uh, fall away and they become, you know, allies uh, to the Federation as the years go on. So we, it's interesting that Meyer had such an influence in kind of the public perceptions of what Starfleet might be versus where Gene Roddenberry, I think he was all about this place exploration and they really pushed that forward, you know, beyond uh, the original series, but they really went forward with that in the Next Generation era as well. Well, you think about the birth of Star Trek where Roddenberry's creating the idea of Starfleet. And the pitch for the show was Wagon Train to the Stars. And you look at so many shows of that era, whether it is, you know, Wagon Train or just so many of these, um, you know, hour-long dramas at the time were about people going place to place and helping, you know, Lone Ranger and what have you, shows like that. And I feel like the initial creation of Starfleet was essentially just kind of an all-in-one in that it allowed the show to do whatever it wanted week to week and genre hop and you could have mostly exploratory stuff but just encounters with life forms 
and then mixed in with things like Balance of Terror, which have more of a military bent or a Navy bent. Um, and you could just kind of say, well, it's all under the umbrella of Starfleet, because in 1966, they weren't that interested in examining what that truly meant. And it's only because this property has been around for 50 plus years that suddenly, you know, as we get into TNG and like the clashes between the Roddenberry and Meyer approach to what Star Trek even is, that suddenly you have to try to nail down what it is. And I don't know that it's possible off the initial, um, you know, origins as to what it was. When I think of, say, a civilian organization like NASA in the United States, I think of that as a, an organization that's benevolent. You know, it, there there might be issues that I'm sure people that work there can complain about, uh, but ultimately it, it's benevolent. Whereas I think of, say, the um, U.S. military or, or, you know, any military, I don't quite ascribe that same benevolence to those sorts of organizations. Um Starfleet is kind of a mix of both. Like we see a lot of this corruption at the higher levels. What are you uh, we see a about? lot of. Uh, <laughs> I know. There's no corruption. Th those Tyler. admirals. <laughs> admirals are always the best, right? <laughs> Clearly. Um, yeah. But uh, but we see on the uh, the lower levels though there seems to be this um, kind of aspiration that they're always going for. They they always want to strive to do the best, and so it is weird that it is just such this mix a mishmash of kind of uh, the goals. And, and I keep bringing this up. We've been doing this podcast for God knows how many years now, five or six. And there always seems to be this authoritarian bent, not necessarily within the Federation, but within how Star Trek portrays the universe in that Starfleet is all knowing. And even if it's not a civilian elected politician uh, making kind of decisions, you know that it's really meant to be the captain of the ship who's always right. The captain knows best. The captain is is like not not somebody who's democratically elected, and for good measure, you wouldn't want to have that on your ship unless, of course, you are in the mirror universe and you can become captain by slicing someone's throat. Um, so it is this portrayal of Starfleet that has this kind of authoritarian bent to it, and I think it is manifesting in many of the episodes that we see. Like, look at. Um, how miserable it seemed to be uh, in Starfleet when we watched, you know, season one of Star Trek Picard, where we have like this deep penetration of, uh, say, Romulan agents within the agency. Maybe they can kind of um, shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's because, you know, the, the Romulans had infiltrated. But I, I think that there's always been this, not even a hint, but this very on-the-nose saying that it's like yeah we, we have this mil military authoritarian bent towards it and that, that's why i can't necessarily kind of ascribe to it that benevolence that i would say an organization just like nasa that that doesn't have any aspirations to say put you know like space rockets and, and fire on you know <laughs> other potential <laughs> space faring uh countries you know like that sort of stuff i've always struggled with the aspirational elements of star trek and look the show and the movies do a good job of filtering it through the characters you know when we're listening to archer or Jordy laforge or troy or whoever talk about like the wonders of starfleet you're like i'm on board i completely understand what you're saying but it's like i've always felt this like issue for in my brain where 
when I have Picard waxing poetic about the wonders of the Federation and Starfleet, I'm like, okay, you sold me. But then we spend a lot of time with, as you said, these like <laughs> corrupt, you know, admirals or just boring admirals or admirals that just seem to have all joy sucked out of them, where it's like, it's hard to buy this like wonderful organization when the people at the top so often seem either shady or just kind of, I don't know, like, what's the word? Like, it seems like whatever dreams Starfleet is chasing do not exist within these individuals. No, and the thing is, they've, how they've never quite addressed that is how that comes to be. You know, like, as soon as you become an admiral, you're far more likely to uh, be become uh, susceptible to corruption. And I, I think that they've had hints at it, you know, like, think about Admiral Pressman, in which you get the sense that even before he became admiral, he's kind of a sleazy guy. Um, is there kind of a an admiral that's kind of escaped that? I, I guess you could argue argue Kirk. Uh, you could also argue perhaps Picard. Those fellas seemed virtuous throughout. You also had kind of the boring ones, like uh, one uh, Admiral Bill from uh, oh, sorry, why am I blanking on the uh, <laughs> Admiral Bill? Admiral Bill from Deep Space Nine, right? Oh, oh now I'm blanking. You, what have you done yeah, to me? I know. <laughs> It's like Ross, Admiral, Admiral Ross, Admiral Bill. His name is so boring. We can't even remember it, but it's either you have Blandy McBlanderson or you have shady sorts of admirals. You know, the the one that I, I, I wish just got more screen time was Necheyev. Like, yeah. it, it's like you could oppose, you could understand that she had opposing worldviews versus Picard. And I, I think you get into an episode like journey's end with regards to Wesley and like, Okay, they they have different worldviews, but she still is kind of striving for those ideals. It's just like she's there to enact what Starfleet orders are, even if the captain disagrees with her. I I, I wish she popped up. I think we got her once on Deep Space Nine. I don't know why we didn't get her as opposed to kind of an Admiral uh, Boring Bill Ross, you know. But um, I guess we've got... It seems as if the only ones that seem virtuous still are when Kirk becomes an admiral, Picard becomes an admiral, Janeway becomes an admiral. Is that just what the fate is going to be? Is unless you've been captain of the one of the ships that we always follow, admirals should always just be suspect. Well, what about that inspirational admiral in Picard? <laughs> is that the one she was like cursing at him, like sheer effing hubris? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that one. Yeah, that's inspirational. You know what? Discovery does several things wrong, but I think Vance is actually shaping up to be a pretty decent admiral, okay. as yeah, well as yeah, Cornwall. Yeah. Uh, Cornwall was pretty effective as well. Um, okay. I just, you always see so many moments where there's like kind of that moment of, you know, that pure Star Trek wonder where like the themes of the message of the episode is imparted and you get like kind of a beaming look on Kirk or Janeway's face and it just really sells to the audience. I would love if they would do that with an admiral every now and again, where you got the sense of, like, this is what they're fighting for, and this is why it matters. Where you really don't. So often it's just the captain wants to do something, and then you've got an admiral barking at them. Yeah. You know, and there are some good examples of th this kind of um, malevolence that we were kind of alluding to. I, I think of a two-parter like Homefront slash Paradise Lost, where Admiral Layton takes it upon himself to prove what a threat the changelings are by kind of faking this this coup you know and like trying to take like uh, martial law into his old own hands and 
what I keep asking myself is what is motivating him. And the fact is he doesn't trust civilian rule. And, and the, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is look at who the producers get to portray the um, Federation president. It, it seems like the most docile sort of equian alien species we've ever seen in, in Star Trek before, which it's kind of telegraphing to the audience. It's like, yeah. This president doesn't know what he's doing when, you know, the, the going gets tough. Admiral Layton, he knows exactly what needs to be done, even though they do eventually like, kind of show that Admiral Layton's just way out there. He, he, like, he's very corrupt in his intentions there. But it, it's, it, it's interesting because, like, I, I just, I don't think, okay, we often talk about admirals being just bad apples. There's just a few bad apples around. I don't think it's just about bad apples. I think there's just something running through the, the spine of Starfleet that eventually ends up in, in this sort of authoritarian bent no matter what. Is it something to do with the fact that, like, when you have Starfleet being, you know, ordered around by the President of the United Federation, that suddenly it becomes more of a political organization in a way that introduces a lot of thorniness? Like, if Starfleet existed kind of just as this exploratory group about, you know, scientific understanding, yes, they have weapons, but that's for mostly defense purposes as they're out there running diplomatic missions. That is something different. It's kind of like, you know, NASA, as you said, um, <laughs> minus the weapons. I don't know that NASA's loaded with weapons when they're heading off into space. But um, when you have like a lot of these stories tied to, as you said, you know, the home, uh, home front paradise lost, where you have like the president um, you know, giving his ideas to Starfleet and whatever. And then you have a lot of presidential stuff in Star Trek VI as well. Suddenly it becomes more of this political tool that Starfleet is, which makes it more problematic. Yeah, and I think, look, from a practical perspective, the reason why it's portrayed this way is for dramatic purposes. You know, it's for the writers to have somebody with authoritarian over the lead of the series and kind of push back against what's going on. I, I totally get it, but what eventually happens when this is repeated over and over again in storytelling is you have an organization... Um, that is not nearly as benevolent that I think as I think uh, it was originally meant to be portrayed as by uh, Gene Roddenberry, and I'm not um, of the mind that you know uh, you you must always obey Roddenberry's vision because we've talked about it before. There, there really is no such thing as the Roddenberry vision. Like it, it changed very much over the years, and what Star Trek became had to do with the inputs of so many other creative people there. But I, I, I think you know <laughs> that, that the other thing that has me thinking a, a lot right now is Star Trek Discovery. You mentioned Admiral Vance just now. We have never spent so much time at Starfleet headquarters than we have over the last season and a half of Star Trek Discovery. I, why is that, Cam? You know, and it, it could, it, either from your own um, practical storytelling interpretation of it, what, what the writers might be doing, or just from kind of what you're observing um, just within universe, as in like why we might be spending so much time at headquarters. I would guess the reason is because when you look at the past Star Trek shows, um, the headquarters, it wasn't really important to what the characters were trying to do or what the focus of the show was. Um, it was more about, you know, these crews being out on these missions in deep space and having to solve problems. And yes, they might go back to Starfleet headquarters for an episode or so to tie into some story, but ultimately it was about what they were experiencing out there. Whereas with Discovery, it's about a shattered, you know, Federation. 
and how Starfleet is going to help rebuild that. So you're going to basically use that as the hub of all activity. You're going to have characters meeting at Starfleet to discuss what they need to do next, um, how they are going to bring Navarre back into the Federation. All of that sort of stuff is tied to what is going on at Starfleet. I just don't think we've had a show like that. You could have argued in a different world, in a different approach to what Deep Space Nine was, you could do that, but because it was this station on the far edges of space, you just wouldn't be as likely to do that. Well, and honestly, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think it's a what you're saying, and also just practical perspectives uh, as well. What you're alluding to there, we have a spore drive. The ship can be wherever it wants to be any given episode, and you can go back to Starfleet and uh, have the action going on there as well. Whereas you, you know, why didn't we spend more time at Starfleet headquarters during Star Trek Voyager? Well, I mean, I <laughs> that was obvious. obvious. Yeah. yeah. So like, I, I, I get that. So it is just interesting that I think, you know, as Discovery progresses, I don't think like they're suddenly just going to ditch headquarters and, and go off somewhere else. I, I think, you know, we've, we've got um, a lot more time being spent there moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see if, if we're going to have to inevitably get to one of these, you know, uh, Starfleet is corrupt sorts of episodes. We haven't gone there yet. And I, I think like I'm happy for that night. What we're trying to see here is a crew from a thousand years ago try to inspire all these folks that may have lost sight of what the Federation was meant to be. And I, I think like, as much as we can critique this season so far, we're seeing examples of that, just going on these kind of benevolent missions of delivering dilithium, for example. That, that's kind of how I've always kind of idealized Starfleet. I, I, I've mentioned before... The, the discovery I always wanted was the uh, first few minutes of um, the premiere of Discovery in which, you know, they're out repairing uh, an outpost for a, a few moments, you know, before they encounter the Klingons. Like, that to me is kind of what I like more than having, you know, the ships uh, blast in their phasers and what have you. Yeah, and you haven't had a real cynical approach to what could be going on at Starfleet. The other shows, well, not so much Voyager, obviously, but would have more questions raised, um, whether it was kind of the rotten admirals who would show up on TNG every now and again, or in, obviously a Star Trek Insurrection as well, and then um, some of the stories on DS9. But, like, with Discovery, when I really think about it, in terms of, like, Starfleet personnel that have not turned out to be great people, it's... Characters like Lorca, who weren't members of Starfleet, who may be posing as Starfleet, we haven't had like a um a genuine like threat or problem character coming from Starfleet. I mean, I really just think of, you know, Section 31 was a problem, but that's a whole other <laughs> element of the uh, you know, the set uh, the Federation story. But um I, I guess I gotta give props to Discovery for not falling back on that lazy trope, one we've seen so many times before. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned it, like, we talked about O as well. Like, she isn't actually really uh, a sworn member of Starfleet. Uh, she may have gone through all that academy training as kind of a uh, a long-time mole. And same with Lorca, like, uh, as corrupt as he was, well, he, he wasn't really part of Starfleet either. So it, it is fascinating in that regard. So, okay, so Discovery shows us kind of where Starfleet is, like, in the far-off future, I, l let's talk a little bit about kind of the origins of Starfleet, which it was very obvious. It's an Earth organization prior to the formation of the Federation. We have, you know, even even Archer was, it was revealed that he was debating whether he would join the Earth cargo services before 
you know, uh, Starfleet uh, uh, formed, which is kind of uh, funny to me thinking of him. Uh, maybe he and uh, Travis Mayweather could have had their own spinoff or something like that. <laughs> what a show and, that would be. <laughs> oh, so engaging. You know, so it is interesting that like over the years, and a lot of this is kind of retconning, but over the years, Starfleet kind of took over more and more of not not just Earth responsibilities, but the Federation responsibilities. Like, let, let me ask you this, Cam. Like, if war were to break out, like uh, the Dominion War, how much is, say, the Vulcan Expeditionary Group involved in, in like, these space battles or what have you? Like, I, I, I think it falls to Starfleet to do the bulk of these offensive and defensive uh, maneuvers during, you know, the, the Jem'Hadar Cardassians uh, uh, waging war on the Federation. That definitely seems to be the case, that it is usually Starfleet at the forefront, and then they're looking for allies to join them. You don't get a lot of, um, say, like, the Vulcans or, um, you know, the Klingons are the, ra- are the ones raging into battle, and Starfleet's like, well, let's go join them. You know, you don't yeah. tend to get those stories, and that probably has more to do with who our lead characters are on these various shows. But nonetheless, that is the case. I think the Vulcans, just by nature are more cautious so they aren't going to be as willing to just dive into a defense as quickly as starfleet who are you know largely run by um you know uh emotional humans okay well okay so does the vulcan expeditionary group have to answer to the federation the same way that starfleet does or does the vulcan expeditionary group answer just to you know the vulcan civilian rulers there like on that planet that is a question i don't know like it's it kind of is like the pull the strings at how starfleet and the federation operates and it starts to unravel or starts to raise a lot of um, tough questions and i've never been that clear on that because one would think when you have a united federation that you know what's good for one is good for all and it wouldn't you wouldn't have these questions. Yeah, it's just interesting that like it obviously started as an Earth organization, and I really think it's more than just that at this point. Which is like, let's say, you, you know, okay, like uh, U.S. military was doing peacekeeping, that there were to be, you know, like uh, multi nations involved with it, and suddenly is does the U.S. military kind of expand and and, and it's all over uh, protecting nations that are its allies and then who is it answerable to at that point you know the united nations nato like who knows it's just why like it's like the org starfleet isn't really analogous with any of these other organizations we have here on earth which is kind of fun it's a sci-fi show and it doesn't have to have like a kind of a direct analog to earth which it's just kind of often easier for us to kind of apply those when we're watching media such as this well, I think it also is, as I said, kind of that all-in-one, right? Like, if you want to do stories that are sort of more modeled on NASA, then Starfleet will give you that. If you want to do something that's more of a war story, Starfleet will give you that. If you want to do something that's diplomatic, Starfleet will give you that. Like, it's kind of the all-in-one storytelling device. Yeah. Well, so, Cam, I'm also curious, you know, just... uh as we think about it but why did the 
uh, what were the Makos up to yeah. you know, before they got on board the NX-01? Like, what were they doing day-to-day on Earth, on a, a united Earth, right? Like, I, I can't imagine they were, like, were they just doing training all day? Were, were there still, I don't know, <laughs> like, wars to be fought on a united Earth? Like, I, I don't know. Tuvok's ancestor had them doing laps all day? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just, I, I still laugh at the idea that Idris Elba... Uh, he would have been on the NX-01 based on how they kind of gave Edison's backstory in Star Trek Beyond, you know? Yeah. And, like, we just kept missing him every single time. And then, But that's the other thing. We're talking about all this, like, weirdness, and it's kind of a character who was a member of the military, the military arm of Earth, and then he was suddenly given a, a ship of his own, and all he wanted to do is fight, fight, fight. Like, that kind of kind of clues into some of the bad decision making of star trek and also kind of the people that they recruit to lead ships that would normally be kind of civilian in nature well when we go back to enterprise and, and that's something that you know um crawl does bring up or edison that you know they were soldiers who were given ships and so like was at the time there this split in terms of development of you know starfleet what they aspire to want to do while at the same time building up like a lot of military might and somehow blending these two things into one because like the makos in um in enterprise i think are a really interesting addition to that show like obviously it's a post 9 11 story and they have this whole you know we need to get back for this attack on our soil the military are involved through the makos but um it raises questions as to exactly what was going on in the larger picture. Like, did they have a, like, massive group of, like, Makos built up for something else? And somehow we blended the two as to how we get an Edison? I, I suppose. You know, it, it's kind of like, um, I don't know. Let, let's say there was a military attachment to a nasa space mission to mars where i don't know that I, I i keep thinking of the brad pitt film ad astra where there were like space pirates abound you know and they needed protection so what happens if that military attachment becomes incorporated with the civilian organization that's going to lead to like uh, a different culture within that once more benevolent sort of organization as well i think that's what we kind of see perhaps happened to starfleet over the years yeah i mean that does make sense because i think it's interesting it's kind of complicated and messy like i like that they introduced that sort of element with the edison character of being a soldier who was given a ship who didn't really want to be an explorer because that's one thing that like they always say within the star trek is like everyone should aspire to be in starfleet like why wouldn't you want to be in starfleet so the idea that like in the early goings when they were building it they were putting people in charge of ships who probably had no business being captains and weren't set out for a life of exploring and diplomacy is kind of interesting. It sort of adds some messiness to the foundations of the Starfleet of the future in the past through that story. Can I ask you, among all the TV series, what is your favorite portrayal of Starfleet in which they, what they typically seem to be involved with day to day? I think for me, it's going to be TOS. Um, to me with TOS, there is more of, uh, and I've talked about it many times, but like the spirit of adventure there, it's like they're out there exploring in a way a lot of the shows don't as much. 
And um, you don't have as many of, I think, the complications of this sort of military angle. Even like a military story like Balance of Terror, um, it's more tied to a specific situation as opposed to a larger story or complicated political issue. So I tend to find there's something much more inspirational or aspirational about the original series and Kirk's adventures. The one thing you start to raise, though, is there's a lot of like peacekeeping stories on TOS, but there's also a lot of these authoritarian ones of Kirk kind of deciding the fate of a planet, which right. starts to raise those questions that will become just more and more pronounced in future generations of Star Trek. You know, I'll give you my answer in a moment. I'm debating between two series as we speak, but in the meantime, I'll tell you the show that it's perhaps my least favorite portrayal, but it's not my least favorite show, not by a long stretch. It's Deep Space Nine, in which, you know, the first couple seasons is portrayed mostly as administrators, you know, aboard this space station. That's not nearly as exciting as going off and exploring, even though you have a wormhole right next to you. And uh, there's those opportunities for kind of diplomatic uh, first contacts, what have you. Uh, Although we didn't see a ton of that. Like we we saw it move along home and, (laughs) you know. Star Trek's finest hour. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, after that, like Starfleet migrated, uh, you know, into more of that kind of militaristic role that we've talked about as the Dominion War breaks out. And uh, Ben kept uh, making uh, his way into the Gamma Quadrant, despite the Dominion asking him not to. And so we kind of see, like, that's not how, if I was going to serve in Starfleet, I would not, A, be interested in doing administrative tasks, and B, I wouldn't really be interested in serving in any sort of militaristic fashion. So the two series that I'm debating between right now, it's either TNG, which might not surprise many people, as we see very much kind of the Picard playing diplomats. We have Jordy and Data often trying to fix engineering or science problems for these planets. I always like kind of the problem-solving nature of Starfleet that we see in Next Generation. The other series I'm debating, though, is Star Trek Voyager, in which, much more so than TNG, it's about exploration, you know, like they're forced to explore. They're coming across nebulas to find coffee, you know, but like those sorts (laughs) of things. It's uh, about trying to survive, but not actively seeking military campaigns. They will defend themselves if need be, but it's not as if they're part of Armada. So there there was that uh, one season premiere, was it uh, Union? Was it called Union or something? Or or it wasn't necessarily a premiere. Uh, I, I might be... Alliances? Was it that? No, no. Alliances was the Kazon episode in which we found out that the Kazon had been kind of a a second-class citizenry uh, among those aliens. But there was kind of in the latter seasons, uh, around season six or seven, I think Voyager and a whole bunch of other aliens' uh, ships found themselves sucked into like this part of space they couldn't get out of unless they kind of teamed up together. Was it the Void? I think it was the the Void. Void. Yes, I think it was the Void. Yeah. So, you know, it kinda, I, I like the way that uh, Voyager portrayed Starfleet as well. If you had to make me choose between the two, I'm going to pull a Mike McMahon. I think it's very clear that his idealized version, the creator of Star Trek Lower Decks, his idealized version of Starfleet is what they were up to with uh, on Next Generation, in which there's ballroom dancing, there is are string quartets playing uh, once a week. You can have um, uh, a bar to hang out with. Uh, hang out at 
I I think that kind of seems like um, the problem solving nature. And even if you're doing second contacts, you're still problem solving there. I, I just really like the problem solving nature of the TNG portrayal of Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, TNG was basically going to be my second place because it feels just like a bit of an evolution as to what TOS was doing. And just through the character of Picard brought in a lot more of a sense of diplomacy and kind of calmed down sort of the cowboy spirit of what TOS was. Um, To me, it's just, it loses a little more of the just, when I watch TOS, there's much more of that, I don't know, inspirational feeling of just going out on adventures and doing good because so much of that show is, you know, doing that. Um, Whereas TNG, you get a lot of, diplomatic stories where i'm like i would not want to have to do that <laughs> <laughs> i feel you there uh yeah i'll throw this question back at you um what's your least for favorite portrayal of starfleet um least favorite because like and look i i, I will I'll, I'll just jump in because i i don't think it's it's fair for us to point at say season one of picard where it's very clear that starfleet is all about being an insular organization we're all about us we got like one season and we weren't even on a Starfleet ship. We were following kind of a civilian ship uh, for like three quarters of it. You know, I, so I don't, I think we kind of have to pull that one out of the running, but out of all the other series, Cam, what, what's your least favorite? In the, cause I'm tempted to also say the, um, the um, TOS film series jumps out sure. as well okay. to me yeah. where I look at, what that sh- what those films are doing and so much of like what i really appreciate about um starfleet is the exploratory and the diplomatic aspects of what they are doing week to week whereas when i look at those films when you chop out the motion picture um it feels more driven by sort of these military stories and a lot of reliance on sort of who the politicians are and the decisions being made that sort of loses, I think, kind of the escapist nature of Star Trek, and it starts to infuse a lot more of real-world complications that obviously Meyer is really interested in tackling in his two Star Trek films that he directed, and I think they're fantastic films. So it's not a quality um, ranking. It's just more in terms of, like, what Starfleet would I want to belong to? I don't know about this uh, TOS film era where it just seems like a lot of meetings... And a lot of, like, conflict. So I, I gotta ask you this, then. If TOS uh, era, the 1960s era, was your favorites, uh, what are your hopes for Strange New Worlds? I think, I mean, the idea it's of... It's portrayal of Starfleet. Yeah, I think the idea of going back to exactly what TOS was is naive, because I don't think that would ever happen. And that was also a um, fairly newly formed idea of what Starfleet could be for a TV show. So I would hope we could have that sort of inspirational sense of discovery and adventure that we got on TOS, but bring in kind of the human Starfleet element we got to see explored on shows like TNG and DS9 to a certain degree. DS9 is a lot darker and a lot more serious than I would like to see on Strange New Worlds, but bringing that sort of level of examination is welcome to me just please don't fill it up with shady admirals and what seems like a lot of cynicism at the top. Yeah, I, I don't mind kind of exploring kind of the nuances or, or shades of gray that could exist within this Uh-oh. organization. Shades of gray. Yeah, I, I feel as if 
anytime I, I refer to that very common idiom, I'm going to have to face that uh, joke. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think it would be interesting if they could show more people who signed up for Starfleet for different reasons. Recall the episode Good Shepherd on Voyager, in which one of the ensigns who had never gone on an away mission before was like, yeah, I just wanted to do a couple years in Starfleet. It would look good on my resume. And then I'd go pursue, I think it was like, I don't know, something at the Daystrom Institute or something like that, you know? And it's like, it'd be interesting if some folks just have completely different aspirations versus, say, a Tilly who she joined Starfleet and she wanted to get on the command track right away. And, you know, we, we're following her journey, and it's a bit of a different journey this season as well, uh, season four of Discovery as well. But I think it'd be fun if they could kind of play around with that uh, in uh, the portrayal on uh, Strange New Worlds. Well, if you show us also characters who come from very diverse backgrounds and had different journeys to Starfleet, their explanation as to why they wanted to join Starfleet can mean a lot to the viewer and help give a sense of how important this organization is. Because there's been episodes um, over time, I think there was one relatively recently. Oh, it was actually that episode you're, I think, talking about with Tilly leading the you know the crew of cadets where you asked why are these people in starfleet it seems like they wouldn't even want to be there and i think that's often the case where star trek will just kind of lazily be like well they want to be there because it's starfleet and that's the greatest yeah. thing of all time <laughs> whereas i think if you can have characters imparting why starfleet matters so much it can only help the show and only help you know the viewer understand why this franchise is so important so i i would be down for that big time Okay, well, Cam, I think maybe we, we can leave it there unless there's something big uh, you, you want to talk about, like uh, Peanut Hamper being the first exocomp in Starfleet. Um, <laughs> you know, but but uh, anything to add before we kind of um, segue into our next segment? Well, I had one question, which is yeah. that like so much of the exploratory nature of Star Trek, I think is why the majority of us are watching, you know, whether it's the shows or the movies. Um, I'm sure there's some who are there just for space battles, and it does give you those. But actually kind of jumping off of space battles, so much of these shows are about Starfleet going out on these exploratory missions in ships that are just armed to the teeth, which tilts a little bit of the power balance in terms of just being these explorers who are just wide-eyed and wanting to explore the cosmos. That's one thing I actually, when you were talking about Voyager, perked up about, which is that one of the things I really appreciate about Voyager is there are explorers who are often underarmed in comparison to a lot of the other species around them. Yeah. So it shows just how much the sort of the moral message and the ideas of Starfleet are informing their decisions. Because in theory, Voyager should want to get the hell out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> well, I know. And that's that was one of the complaints that uh, I think uh, Mike Jonas, the uh, the one who aligned with Seska, like he's saying, like, uh, we could have been home by now, you know, like, like she's not <laughs> leading the ship correctly. And it's also you look at uh, one Captain uh, Rudy Ransom as played by uh, one John Savage, you know, which one's the screen name, which one's the uh, character name, who knows. But uh, he was just like his goal is like, let's just get home as quickly as possible. That was him as the one commander. Perhaps he would have been a bad apple admiral as well if he uh, made it back there. But I think overall, like you make a very good point, though. It's like they they are kind of more the explorers. Like that, Janeway is a scientist by trade as well, which is kind of like uh, 
I, I think it was the first time that we had like kind of a science officer assume the role of captain in uh, Star Trek. And I don't know, I'd be surprised if one of these spinoffs eventually isn't just called Star Trek Explorers. You know, like that would be kind of, you know, indicative of what is meant by the, the people joining uh, up with uh, with Starfleet. Because when you think about it, if um, Picard rolls up to Angel One in the Enterprise D and is like, hey, we've come down on a diplomatic mission. I feel like the people of Angel One are going to be a lot less likely to be like, um, yeah, sure, come aboard. If you like, they're showing up on like the solar sail ships from like the episode Explorers <laughs> of DS9. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when it's this massively armed battle cruiser basically rolling in, you're like, okay, well, uh, let's open the doors and hope for the best. Well, then, okay. Um, Cam, you know, uh, look, uh, I think what we want to talk about next is uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, probably going to be the, the biggest blockbuster of the holiday season here. A lot of sci-fi elements, is which is why we want to talk about it. Um, it'll be a spoiler-filled discussion, so just be warned if you haven't seen it yet. So if you want to tune out now, uh, I'll just um, tell you what's coming up on our next episode. And it will be our annual year-end episode and review. We'll be talking about our highlights uh, of our favorite episodes. There's always going to be bloopers, of course. And we'll just talk about what the year 2021 has meant for us in Star Trek. Yeah, and I think this was an interesting year. A lot of Star Trek content out there. So I'm looking forward to kind of wrapping up what has been a very busy Star Trek year. Yeah. All right, folks, uh, if you're down for some Spider-Man content, uh, yeah, let, let's kick it off, Cam. Uh, we got back from the movie theater. We watched it last night. Uh, this is the first 3D experience I've had in theaters for like two years. I thought they got rid of 3D, Cam. You saw me. I had to run out of my chair and go grab the glasses that everybody put on at, just as uh, the credits began rolling. And so I looked like a dork, but I wasn't the only one. I was not the only one in theaters. But uh, overall, what was your experience watching Spider-Man No Way Home? Well, I'll just say I wish it hadn't been 3D because most of the movie's set at night and um, not the best for 3D, folks. Not the best. And It looked terrible. It, it, it did. I find it very frustrating when I talk to a friend of the show, Scott Hardy, about going to movies in the UK and he's like, what are you talking about 3D? We don't do 3D anymore. And I'm like, boy, that is not my experience at all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I am... Um, when you look at the Marvel heroes, Spider-Man is, in terms of who's being adapted to film these days, my favorite. Um, I'm still crossing my fingers for that Silver Surfer film that I have long dreamed of, which I think would include a lot of Star trek -ian elements. I would love to see that. But Spider-Man is the one that I think is the most effective on screen because I think what makes him so effective is the philosophical core of Spider-Man is incredibly easy to communicate, and yet you can delve into it in so many different ways. The with great power comes great responsibility theme. I mean, they've kind of tackled that in every Spider-Man movie. And except for the Amazing Spider-Mans, which tried to go in the exact opposite direction and just be reckless. But this one, I thought it could have been a mess. It could have been very busy. You've got multiverse stuff going on. We are combining multiple Spider-Man franchises. This could have been so messy. And I found I was very wowed with just how clean the storytelling was but also how emotional it was and how it managed to wrap up in many ways three, you know, St Spider-Man stories that have been going on over the last couple decades in ways that I found incredibly satisfying 
and paying off characters that I genuinely had never given a crap about in the past. Well, okay, uh, you haven't said it yet, Cam, but there, there, we get to see Tobey Maguire, we get to see Andrew Garfield uh, reprise their respective Spider-Man uh, characters. That was amazing. And the thing is, I, I, I figured it was going to happen based on what we knew about this movie. I thought it was going to be like, oh, yeah, that's a great seven minutes together. Cam, they are there for the entire final act of the movie, and they give so much nuance to these characters. I never cared about Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, and you actually see this. <laughs> he, like, like, I feel for him when he's talking about the death of Gwen and that moment in which he saves MJ from uh, the Tom Holland universe, and that gives him just kind of this, this emotional relief. Like, he's actually able to do that, you know, in that moment. And even listening to, like, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man talk about, like, him and MJ from his universe making it work all these years. And we're seeing, like, kind of this older Spider-Man. It was making me think a little bit about the um, the uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, movie that we saw a couple years ago with all the different portrayals. I never thought they could top that. I totally think the last act of the movie um, outdid my expectations. And maybe my expectations were a little low. As you said, they totally hit those emotional beats. It totally felt earned. When you say the storytelling is clean, I, I got to disagree with you 100% there. Those first really? two acts, those first two acts, that those were not uh, well-structured from a storytelling perspective. It was also just kind of, if you're not like super well-versed in all this Spider-Man lore, so much of it will just fly right over your head. That final act, I was surprised. Now, that final act actually totally impressed me in that I felt as if I didn't need to know any of the Spider-Man lore. I didn't need to rewatch all these movies again and again and again. Those three Spider-Man moments and characters interacting, that felt totally earned if you had never known anything or watched any of those movies. But leading up to that, I was... I was very concerned, especially with all of these disparate uh, villains. Uh, although, <laughs> I need to step back and tell you, Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin, is he the greatest, like, Marvel, like, villain portrayal uh, up until this point? Like, it's just like, that, that he was absolutely incredible in this uh, movie. But um, after, after being a, a little cautious about uh, those first two acts and being like, uh-oh, what are we doing here? This movie blew me away by the end. Marvel movies, um, they're... Uh, climaxes I tend to suck um, almost like about 90% of them do this one did not this one was exceptional the action made sense and it was so emotional and I, I, I really do like this movie although I hesitate calling it a movie it, it, it again it's, it's a common complaint I have but it feels more like content in the form of two and a half hours and I know a lot of hardcore Marvel fans are going to disagree with me saying I'm too harsh on that but I feel totally confident in saying that and as flawed as like something like Black Widow, Shang-Chi, or The Eternals, they're, they're all very flawed movies, but they are telling self-contained stories. And that feels much more like cinema to me than what we got here, which was very much kind of a, a mishmash web, you know, no pun intended, uh, of content here for uh, No Way Home. Yeah, I mean, the whole content aspect of the Marvel Universe is just a reality at this point you either are on board or you're not and that can often vary movie to movie because i think you know you and i watched shang chi um black widow eternals and i uh, look 2021 was not a great year for marvel in my eyes and the fact that they finished so strongly is great but the rest of the year was <laughs> these were not top tier marvel efforts coming out by and large but um no like i think to me like 
I, I found actually the way that they introduced all the various elements. I guess when I say clean, what I mean is like, I could see my parents watching this movie and actually being able to follow what's going on, which is not what I expected. I genuinely thought as soon as the multiverse stuff came into play, it was going to be just head spinning kind of stuff happening. And I found the ways that they managed to introduce all these characters into the whatever the prime MCU world made a lot of sense. And the villains, I thought one of the smartest thing they did was, I know people have always wanted a Sinister Six. Um, Spider-Man fans have always wanted to see that. And we were one short this time. But I was saying to my sister after the movie that one of the genius elements of this movie was by bringing in all of these villains we've introduced in past films, you didn't have to deal with origins. They could just show up. You could have some setup for them. But ultimately, they were kind of like greatest hits versions of those villains. If you remembered Willem Dafoe even a little from the original Spider-Man, you're kind of seeing some of the same things here. Same with Doc Ock, same with, um, you know, Lizard. It's like, if you've seen them, you vaguely remember, they basically get those characters across in minimal screen time as to what they really need to do. The only one that's a little different is Electro, where just clearly they needed to make major changes there. Yes. But, um, yes. <laughs> but just like when I was saying like characters, I never gave a crap about Electro is a good example of that. Like I walked out really enjoying Electro in this movie. Even Lizard had an odd moment or two where I was like, Oh, that's kind of fun. And these were people I never wanted to see in a movie ever again after those amazing Spider-Man films. Well, I'll say, uh, okay, now I, I do agree with you in how you've kind of explained how how you're defining clean storytelling, and I, I'll totally concede that there. Um, and, and also just the portrayal of Doc Ock at the uh, start of the second act where they're on the highway, I've never felt as if he seemed more dangerous. Like, he seemed extremely homicidal, and even just the portrayal of his arms— I was just like, oh, I, I, they've never felt so like uh, life-threatening to me as well. And uh, when Electro did his first like zap, I was like, oh, like uh, however John Watt was directing it, it just there's this feeling of threat that I'd never felt from these villains before that I thought was very very cool. Um, I thought I, the really cool moment. Sorry, just to bump in there, but like the Electro sequence where we first see him and he's just in the far-off background charging was like very ominous. Yes, yes. Um, what did you think of the uh, uh, de-aging effects? We were speaking about de-aging uh, not too long ago, uh, possibly William Shatner. And, um, but, uh, I, well, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you my answer. I, 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 I don't want to, you know, kind of uh, ask you a, a leading question, but I thought the de-aging of both Doc Ock as well as Green Goblin was fantastic. Like, probably the best de-aging, like, I've seen in uh, cinema so far. I, I was incredibly impressed. It didn't make me uh, take a second glance. It didn't throw me out of it, much like maybe the first five minutes of The Irishman did. And I would say um, all of Data's portrayal on season one of Picard. Yeah, I thought it was really well done. And the movie is mostly all set at night, which I would suspect, I mean, obviously it's a darker Spider-Man story. We're dealing with, you know, loss here. You know, you have the death of um, Aunt May, who really does take the Uncle Ben role from those original Spider-Man sort of stories. And um, so the movie is darker than the previous two Spider-Mans. So I think the night element was added just for a mood sort of setting. But on a more practical level, it was, I think, to hide a lot of that de-aging as well as make characters like Sandman and Lizard a lot cheaper. 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally get that. So um, just some moments, though, that, that jump out to me. Um, we, we have Spider-Man saying, like, to his fellow Spider-Mans, um, who are the greatest villains you ever fought? And then we finally land on Andrew Garfield. He's like, once I fought a Russian man in a robot suit. And everyone's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Tobey Maguire has to, like, pat him on the back, like, you're amazing. You're amazing. And like that guy, like, um, <laughs> like we also, we had a very rowdy audience cam. Like you could tell these yeah. were hardcore fans. Um, for me personally, I don't know how you felt. It, it made my skin crawl when I heard some of the, the screaming and jubilation at some of the reveals there. I, I'm just not that sort of, uh, emotional person when I'm in a movie theater and I feel the need to like jump out of my seat and hoot and holler. I, I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it because it just... It was an experience I haven't had forever in a movie theater. Um, yeah. You know, we've been going to movies, I guess, starting for me with uh, Fast 9, for you, Black Widow. But we haven't had that sort of big communal movie yet. We haven't had our, you know, end game. And is it a little frustrating that these sorts of moments only seem to come from Marvel movies that rely on feeding into nostalgia and memories of past movies? Kind of, I kind of, you know, missed sort of the experience of, for example, when I first saw Independence Day, something no one really knew what it was and was cheering by the end of the movie. But at the same time, there was something so exciting to me about having a completely packed audience and moments, there's the big moments. When you have three Spider-Men swinging, of course the crowd is going to be cheering. But just like there was the bits where they, you know, uh, had Willem Dafoe recite the um, the meme of, you know, Green Goblin about I'm something of a scientist myself. And okay, the whole th audience that one explodes. Went yeah, but that one totally went over my head. I'd, I'd never seen that meme yeah. before. So I didn't know what was going on. I, I was uh, uh, I, I was going to lean over to uh, your sister who I was sitting next to and be like, what, is, what are they talking about? Like, those are kind of the moments that kind of irked me there. Even though there's other stuff that I, I saw that I got that I knew like if just like an average person like was there in the audience and they weren't that familiar, like they wouldn't get it. And, and I think the problem is people can sense when they're not in on the joke. And that's, that's kind of, and I'm not saying a, about the communal experience. I, they could be at home watching this movie. And I think there's this underlying sense that there's a lot of stuff that you're not privy to here, but I, I, I'm sorry, go, go on. Well, no, I always like though, how these Marvel movies kind of layer their jokes where there's a lot of the stuff that's character-driven you're going to laugh at. And then they'll kind of bury it deeper and deeper where you've got stuff that's sort of the more the mid-tier fans will pick up on. And then there was like a line that, you know, his friend Ned made about, um, boy, I wonder if there's another Ned Leeds out there, which I crack, like kind of chuckled to myself because like that's a real obscure comic book reference. So I was like, okay, you know what? I think it's just fine if they layer it. Um, what, what? I would be more concerned if they were just burying like everything in these arcane references. What was the reference? Because I, I didn't even know the, what, what that was. Yeah, Ned Leeds was one of the hobgoblins in the original comics. Okay. See, and he, and did, also... he did not come to a good end. It was a very grim end. <laughs> but but uh, that also informs yet another joke that uh, came up now that I can think about it in which uh, Andrew Garfield was talking about how his best friend ended up dying like a horrible death. And I remember Ned just going like, oh. But the fact that he's kind of tied to uh, the whole goblin, I guess, lineage there. That, uh, that That's what I'm talking about. It's just like there's stuff that totally goes over my head that like the hardcore fans will oh, pick up on. No. You know? That was Tobey Maguire, and he was referring to the James Franco Green Goblin. 
from uh, the oh, Amazing well, Spider-Man Three. Okay, I, 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 not, I sorry, mistook, Spider-Man Three. I, I mistook uh, one uh, Andrew Garfield's remark for Tobey Maguire's uh, remark there, but mm-hmm. uh, the, the Goblin lineage, uh, I think, stands. I, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the new Goblin. I think they called him in Spider-Man Three, which was an unfortunate choice. I did think there was one little thing that was interesting. Maybe we can also touch on, which is that. The reason that these villains pop over to this universe is because that they are characters who knew the identity of Peter Parker being Spider-Man. And which made me wonder, gee, where's Topher Grace Venom? Because <laughs> he knew. Well, yeah, well, okay, yeah, yeah. And I was, because the thing is, uh, we got one villain from each film. And does it make it, and, and I, I was thinking about that. Does it make it messy where instead of Sandman, you bring over Topher Grace's Venom while you also have Tom Hardy's Venom out there? You know, and, and I wonder just from a, a branding marketing perspective, Sony was just like, uh, I don't know if we want to go down that road where it just might be ultra confusing. I think that's the best answer. Yeah, I think that's exactly why. Also, just within the confines of the story itself, it's about... Peter Parker wanting to help these villains and they're doing that through scientific methods. You see the three Spider-Man doing science together, which we don't get a lot of. It's kind of like Batman being the detective. You know, Spider-Man is a scientist and it's something that we don't get touched on enough in the movies. And I liked it here, but um, a lot of these answers were things that maybe Spider-Man could figure out. Whereas like with Venom with an alien symbiote suit and all that sort of stuff, it gets a lot more complicated than you know injections of vaguely defined serums yeah um, look o- overall i i <laughs> i thought this is a uh too delightful of a movie for me to crap on too much like i i, I think the final act totally makes up for whatever complaints i have uh, about what came before it and whatever complaints i had I, I still had fun like uh, especially when that second act got going i had fun within uh the reveals that we got there i i was having fun there even though I was kind of like, is this just cynical fan service? But which I, I'm like, you know what? It might be fan service. It might be manipulative. But if it's fun to watch, then uh, whatever. And it, it, even the first act, you could tell that they're just kind of getting things going. I'm okay with it. I I I think that kind of the personal, the smaller relationships in uh, the Holland era Spider-Man, it, it feels real to me in a way that's you know maybe the, the Dane DeHaan friendship with uh, Peter Parker in the Garfield <laughs> movies did not. Yeah, yeah. Well, no kidding. Um, and that is an element to this story, too, which is that they kind of adapted the notorious, actually widely hated One More Day Spider-Man story of him having to make the choice um, to essentially erase his marriage to Mary Jane from existence, which they kind of did here with him having to um, erase any memories of him from his friends' uh, lives. And... Um, how long do you think this is going to play out in an endgame? Like, do you think they are going to stick to this in ways? Or are we going to have the classic Marvel, big, epic sort of leave off to the story and then we kind of quietly just rejigger things in the future? Okay, so this is what I've been thinking about. Because um, Multiverse of Madness, the next Doctor Strange movie, was supposed to come out before Spider-Man No Way Home. And then Which they is unfortunate. had to, yeah. Well, then they had to rejigger the scripts and do more shooting for both movies to make it work. Which is one of the reasons I think that, like, as I said, that there's some bumpy moments storytelling wise. That's kind of uh, you can see is kind of pulling the movie out. It seems to a certain degree. 
So I, in my head, like, I can't imagine... Okay, do you think this was Prime Doctor Strange who went ahead with uh, th- this spell? I would say yes. I, I do think so. You don't think it was a variant as we saw in Loki? Um... The reason I'm saying yes is because I feel like that would just be two cheats in a row where you had the Nick Fury, um, fake Nick Fury in the last Spider-Man movie. Like, I don't know that they would repeat that. Well, it also seems that they keep repeating, like, Peter making very irresponsible decisions. And, and like, he's kind of a—he's still, like, a young, dumb, naive kid, and I get that. And that's why I don't mind him, you know, doing that (laughs) bad bad decision-making. But why on earth would Doctor Strange agree to this? That does make sense to me. I don't know. Uh, Stephen Strange is a pretty arrogant character, and I think I, I could kind of buy into this that he would do this because, but like, if he, if he the... was so good, if he was so good at being a sorcerer, wizard, whatever, how, how come he failed so miserably? Um. Well, I mean, he got the distracted, stuff interrupted. He got, like he got that... distracted many times over. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, so 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 to answer your broader question, um, uh, what I was leading to is like whether or not this is going to be fixed relatively quickly in the next movie. Because if we have to wait through the entire phase four of this, then think about all of the life that Peter's been living that would then be thrown away after this, you know, in which he's kind of, uh, his friends are living his own life. He doesn't have uh, an amazing costume with nanobots anymore. It's now his own homemade, um, <laughs> which apparent to be like, glittery sort of uh, costume uh, that, that he's using at this point. I, 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 my suspicion is that from a storytelling perspective, it, it makes sense for them to fix this in Multiverse of Madness. But if you watch Loki, it, it seems obvious that Kang is going to be kind of the big bad moving forward. And this multiverse stuff is not really going to be fixed until the end of Phase 4, which tells me that's how long it's going to take until uh, life there's more of this balance in uh, Peter Parker's life that uh, was kind of thrown out the window after the events of this movie. Because I like that they kind of give this sort of soft reboot to the character where we go back to really what classic Spider-Man is, which is the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, you know, living in the dumpy apartment. Um, You know, every day is just kind of making it through the day, going out at night, you know, taking on villains. But when you had this Spider-Man so entwined with Avengers world, it kind of took that element of the character away so i'm happy to kind of do that for a while but the idea of having this character swinging around new york on missions and the avengers looking at computer screens seeing this character and being like let's ignore that seems unlikely (laughs) yeah but it's not as if they're going to find him and then say oh yeah i remember you and i think he's you know going to have to deal with that you know does he uh well okay let's think about what's going on with gamora i you know they're gonna be pursuing her um in that she doesn't remember like her time with the guardians at this point and i so maybe they do go down that road you know like um because i I thought maybe what you're asking is if does the the universe get fixed in a way where it's not as if uh all the people that cared for spider-man be it MJ, Ned, or the Avengers, where they eventually kind of come to remember him. And, and Spider-Man knows all of this. And I, I, I can imagine there being some funny moments in maybe the next Ant-Man movie if Spider-Man's there. I, I, I doubt it. But if uh, he knows a couple things about Ant-Man, who has maybe, in his memory, just met Spider-Man for the first time. Yeah, that could actually be a really good source of comedy. And I mean, in terms of you know him and his friends, that can be 
fixed pretty quickly. It's a little different when it's, uh, you know, him and MJ were together one movie. So the idea of them uh, meeting again in the future is not a big deal. I could sure. see just moving forward from there. I am really interested where they go from now. John Watts is moving over. And I've really, I just want to say, I've really appreciated what John Watts has done with these three Spider-Man films. I think he's visually maybe not as dynamic as a Sam Raimi. Like I really am consistently wowed by what Sam Raimi did with that character um, on the big screen. John Watts isn't as strong a visual stylist, but he's also working largely in the Marvel factory, which is also not amazing with visuals. Um, But just from a character standpoint, I've loved what he's done. I'm excited to see him move over and continue on with Fantastic Four in the near future. But I am a little just curious who handles Spider-Man going forward. We know Sony has a lot of their own ideas. could be terrifying, could be interesting, could be good. I don't know. Uh, well, I think it's obvious who it's going to mm-hmm. be uh, to come back on. Yeah. Oh, wait. Do you want me to just spill the beans? Sure, go ahead. Colin Trevorrow. Hallelujah. You know what? I have no reason to be concerned. <laughs> no, none at all. Okay. Well, Cam, uh, <laughs> I think we spoke about Spider-Man just as about as much as we spoke about uh, Starfleet. Fair enough. I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Tune in next week for our wrap up to 2021. You can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Venom. Where was he in Spider-Man, Smith? You can find me at Reporton, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, and is in No Way Home. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closing. Transfer complete.